Let me encourage you to take your Bibles and go back to John's Gospel, and we'll go to the 12th chapter this time. This is page 898, if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you there. Who is Jesus? I want to wrestle with that question. It's one of those questions that you're like, well, I know the answer to that. But I want you to wrestle with it today, okay? Just wrestle with that a little bit. John chapter 12. I'm going to read this, um, starting verse 12, and I'm going to go back and reference uh, other portions in this chapter. John 12, verse 12 says, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, the Passover feast, had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees, that's why we call it Palm Sunday, of palm trees, and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, quote, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt, end quote. It's a prophecy, prophecy from Zechariah. Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, when they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him, from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was because they'd heard he had done the sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. What an amazing statement. There's lots of moving parts here. There's lots of contributing factors to this, emo this, this moment right here. And John doesn't give us all the details. In fact, if we were to look at the synoptic gospels, gospels as Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if we were to look at those gospels, and we would see that there's a lot more details given there. For, for instance, uh, Jesus doesn't just simply find a young donkey. Uh, he sends two disciples to go get a young donkey and its mother and bring uh, that, th those animals to him. We find other details throughout the account there, but what John is centering on, and he's centering on a very important point, is how the world began to see Jesus Christ, what their perspectives were. You know, what we think about someone is shaped by our perspective of them. Um, I, I once read, I don't know if it was online or something like this, it was, someone said something to the fact of, you never know how many people you don't like until you try to pick up baby names, okay? <laughs> All right, you know, how many, it's like, oh, I, yeah, here's that name. No, I know too many people with that name or whatever the case, but what we, you know, how we view someone is, is shaped by our perspective of them. So here's a picture I want to show you guys. This was June 1st, 2002. All right, happy couple, right? Okay. You know, one of them in that picture looks better than the other, okay? And, uh, you know, 16 years coming up. I mean, can you believe it? It seems like just yesterday, right? You know, wedding pictures are great, but they, they don't tell the full story, okay? Now, we're happily in love in this moment, 
totally oblivious to what <laughs> was going to happen in so many ways, but just happy in love. But that picture does not show a story that was started at love at first sight, <laughs> okay? Uh, it was not love at first sight, was it? No, no, not at all. Um, we, let me tell you the story a little bit. We, uh, I was a youth pastor, and uh, the very first time we met, and uh, she was a missionary uh, to, she was in Belgium at the time, and uh, she would base out of the church where I was a youth pastor at when she uh, was back in the States for deputation raising support. So how, would you go for six months and come back? Is that what you did? About that? Yeah. So the very first time, you know, I, I, I'm told, you know, I'm the youth pastor, I'm young and everything. There's, they say that, you know, one of our missionaries is going to be here next week and uh, her, name, her name is Anuk. And I, I didn't, I'd never seen a picture of her. I didn't know anything about it. I just imagined, you know, an Eskimo or somebody. Um, I, I didn't know what I was looking for. And so uh, the very first time I, uh, I asked one of the kids in the youth group who had been at the church longer and I had been there and I said, I said, is that, is that Anuk over there? Because I wanted to introduce myself and, you know, welcome uh, this missionary that's off the field. And I pointed to this 75-year-old lady that was visiting for the first time that Sunday, and, and he laughs, and he says, no, 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 that's not a nook, okay? And so then he points, you know, her out, and so I go up, and I'm like, I'm like hey, my name's Jeremy, you know, I'm a youth pastor here, welcome, good to meet you. And she was just, like, stone-faced, and just, just, like, cold as ice to me. All right. I mean, absolutely cold as ice to me. Am, am I right on this? Of course I am. Okay. And so, um, <laughs> so she's, she's absolutely cold as ice to me. All right. And so, so I was like, oh, man, what, what did I do? What did I say? You know, and, 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 you know I mean, because there was, there was, I mean, it wasn't, I wasn't, you know, trying to flirt with her or anything. I was just trying to be nice. And so, so then, and then, you know, a few days go by. And I see her, I thought, well, I'm going to try again. I'm going to just try to be nice and you know, say hi. So, so I go on and say hi, you know, and, you know, it's good to have you here this week and things like that. And uh, uh, ice cold again, you know. I thought, this lady, I mean, she's never going to get the support she needs for deputation here if she's treating everyone this way. And I'm just having all these thoughts in my mind about how terrible of a missionary this lady is. Why are we even supporting her? You know, what is this deal with this? And, and so I'm just all, you know, because I was personally wounded because someone didn't like me. Imagine that. And so, so, but what I didn't know, what was going on in her mind, okay? Okay, because see, let me tell from her side of the story here. Her side of the story is that she goes to church after church after church after church, and everyone and their sister says, I know a guy for you, all right? I know you need to meet my nephew, all right? You know, he's, he's you know, uh, you know uh, uh, just a great guy, and you have to meet him. Okay. Well, over time, after time, after time of this happening, she begins to build this resistance up of like, okay, I, I can't do this. And then so, and she had this thing where, and, and she wanted to be friends with someone, whoever she married first and all this stuff. She didn't know how that was going to work out. She's only in church a couple weeks and all these things. And so this is all going on in her soul. She's wrestling with this. And then this over-friendly 
very handsome, I might add, man walks up to her and is saying, is saying, you know, hey, how you doing? What is the first thing she's thinking? She's thinking, okay, either you're really trying to, to, to date me here or someone set you and someone's trying to set us up here. And so she had this like defense mechanism here. Obviously, we worked through it, okay? We eventually got past this, uh, right? Uh, I'm assuming we did. Okay, okay, so, so we got past this, and then, you know, we started, you know, hanging out together as friends and being together and, and you know, with, uh, with a mutual friend, and, and just uh, the Lord really answered some of her prayers in that way, and, uh, and then we started dating, and she was across the ocean. This was before FaceTime and all that sort of thing, AOL, Messenger, had just come on the scene. Uh, and so that's how we communicated uh, her in Belgium, me in Rockford, Illinois. And we have a great marriage today. I love her so much. She's, she's God's gift to me that I just needed. And the Lord knew that. But it didn't start out with the greatest first impressions. I mean, she thought I was this forward, desperate guy. That's probably accurate. But, and I thought she was just kind of snobby, and it didn't work out. But our perspectives had to change in order for us to have a relationship. And that's ex- exactly what happened. Over time, she began to realize that I wasn't uh, just being set up or something that um, I was just being friendly. And over time, I realized that she wasn't being stuck up and she wasn't being harsh and mean. She was dealing with some of these challenges that were very real to her and, and very real. And so our perspectives had to change. I told you what I want to do this morning in the message. I want to show you from these two chapters of John 11 and John 12, I want to show you five different perspectives that I see come out of the text of how people saw Jesus. And then what I'd like to do is all along the way, I want you to ask yourself, how are you seeing Jesus today? Okay, because we can move in and out of how we see Jesus, okay? And so what I want you to do is, where are you at today in your relationship with Jesus Christ? And so as I point these five perspectives out, be asking yourself these questions. Okay, do I have elements of this in my perspective of Jesus Christ. And it could be that we all need to tweak our perspective of Jesus this morning. It could be that we need to change our perspective just a little bit in order to have the beautiful relationship. Just like Anouk and I had to change our perspective of each other in order to have a beautiful relationship, maybe you need to change some of your perspective of Jesus today. And maybe I need to be challenged with that. And so with that in mind, with that introduction, let's just go through and kind of look at this text of Scripture. I don't have time to read through all both chapters, so we'll just kind of point out where uh, we see these in the narratives. First of all, the first perspective I want to point out is that Jesus was someone to fear, okay? Now, we see this. We see this um, in the, the chief priests and the Pharisees and how that they said that they were reacting with him. This is chapter 11 and uh, verse uh, 45. It says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and seen what he did, talking about the resurrection of Lazarus, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So, verse 47, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we going to do? For this man performs many signs. Look at verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. 
You see, this is one of the reasons why Jesus was crucified in the end. It was because the chief priests, the Pharisees, they feared that the Romans were going to come in and they were going to remove their authority, that they were going to remove their security, they were going to remove their national identity. And this is what they were saying. They said that this was a threat here. Jesus is a threat to us. And so they were actually fearful of what it would mean, what Jesus would mean to their everyday life. They knew that other people were following him. And so they were afraid. They were saying, if, if all these people follow after him, did you see that it says that if everyone, if, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then what's going to happen is we're going to lose our identity. We're going to lose our security of what we find right now under the Roman protection. And, and we find the security of being, uh, 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 being allowed to operate as we are under the authority of the Roman Empire. And, but we can still keep our identity. But we're going to lose all of that because the Romans are going to come in and they're going to squash all of this. If we let Jesus do what he's doing... He is going to wreck our lives. He's going to make a mess of our lives as we know it. And so they feared him. They feared that Jesus would change what they held most dear in this earth. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes, you know, when, when I, in my fellowship of Jesus Christ, I recognize that following him may mean a radical change in my life. It may mean that I look at things differently. In fact, actually, it does. It's not about a possibility there. It's not may. It will. And so how you view Jesus will determine how you live this life. It will have ramifications on our budgets and ramifications on our time. It will have ramifications on our friendships. It will have ramifications on how we live this life and what encouragement we find and what hope, where we find our hope and security in this life. But these people, they didn't want Jesus for that. They, 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 they were afraid of Jesus, of ruining their life, and so they, they rejected him. Now, I don't know anyone's spiritual condition here. I, I don't know where you are before the Lord. I don't know if you, for sure, if you're a believer in Christ or not. Some of you I see fruit. Some of you I see things that, that, are, are, I, that I think that you're believers. You tell me you're believers, and that's wonderful, and I have no reason not to believe it. So, but what I'm saying is that at the end of the day, the only one that can truly know someone's heart is God. And, and you, know, you can see fruit in my life, but at the end of the day, I could be deceiving. And so the only one that knows my heart is God. And so what I'm saying is there is... God knows your standing and how you view Jesus. And maybe someone here today, and maybe you've grown up in church, or maybe you've, you've uh, spent a lot of time in church, or maybe you know, this is a new thing to you. But you've got to wrestle with the fact that Jesus Christ is not someone to be feared. He's someone to run to. But when you run to him, you've got to understand that he will change your life. And priorities will change. And you will lose your identity you know, Luke chapter 9, it says that uh, uh, we must take up our cross daily and follow Christ. Identity. Later on in John chapter 12, Jesus is going to say this. He says, and this is verse 24 of chapter 12, he says, Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies and it bears much fruit, whoever loses, who loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal 
life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Jesus is saying, you can't love your life without Christ. You can't. You, you've got to relinquish what you have, your, where you're finding your securities, whether it be in retirement accounts, whether it be in your health, whether it be in your position, in your job, in your promotions, whether it be your identity as a parent, your identity as a, a problem solver, wherever that finds yourself, wherever your, your security is, if you follow Jesus, he's going to start poking on it. He'll start poking on it. And it will be the best thing that ever happens to you, but it will be painful. So he, for the perspectives of the chief priests and the Pharisees, he was simply someone to fear because he was going to mess their plans up. Do you look at Jesus as someone who's an intruder in your life? Or someone who is your life? That's something to wrestle with. But there's another perspective. The second perspective is that Jesus was not just someone to fear, but we also see some people that it seems like that Jesus was someone to admire. They, they actually liked the things that Jesus was doing. And, and we see this, and I told you that this uh, account of Lazarus was an enormous miracle. This was, uh, there's so many facets to this in a theological level that are, are just beautiful to unpack. And we don't have time to go through all that today, but there's so many reasons why this miracle was a very important miracle for Jesus to do, and it really led into this triumphal entry that we're talking, that we're celebrating today on Palm Sunday. But in the process, we saw some people who simply liked what Jesus was doing, but we don't get the sense that they were all in on him. We don't get the sense that they were truly followers of him. Let me just give you some examples of this where we see this at. In verse 55 of chapter 11, it says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying one to another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them alone so that they might arrest him. So people are asking, do you think Jesus is going to show up? He's going to be here? Later on in John chapter 12, we said this in verse 17. I already read this to you, but I'll say it again. Verse 17 of John 12 says, The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. And so they were there. And so we see that there is this, a group of people the Jews, first of all, in chapter 11, verse 56. We see uh, the Greeks also, um, later on in John chapter 12, uh, that were there with him. And so we see that there's these all sorts of people that were uh, there to watch Jesus do the sign, and they were interested in him in doing other things. And this is the reason why, in uh, verse 19, I think it is, of chapter 12, the Pharisees say, look, the whole world's going after him. Jews, Gentiles, everyone has gone after Jesus. And they were admiring him. But we get the sense from reading the other Gospels that they all didn't follow Jesus. We get the sense that they were there to see the miracles and they were to see the signs and they were to see what he could do. And they were amazed by it. They were actually amazed at what Jesus could do. And so they admired it, but we don't get the sense that they were truly believers and followers of Jesus Christ. So maybe this is one of your perspectives. Jesus is, is admirable. He's someone that you look at his life and you think, man, that had to be tough 
to leave heaven and come down to earth and, and be uh, formed as a human and, and have a human nature and be 100% God, 100% man and, and deal with the temptations, deal with the trials and, and the things that he said, the wisdom that he said, it was amazing. It was amazing, but yet, so you admire him, but yet he stopped short of totally following him and worshiping him. And letting him control every nuance of your life. You admire him. You have, you have a, an appreciation for them. For some of you, maybe you grew up in church and, and you know all the stories. You know all the things that Jesus did. And you know that you should appreciate him. And you should. But do you stop short? Is your perspective of only one of admiration? Yes, Jesus is worthy of admiration. We should admire him. Absolutely. But it should go much more than that. Our admiration should have tangible impacts on our everyday life. And so we see here that Jesus was simply someone to admire here. Not only that, we see another perspective as we look at this text. We see that Jesus was a means to prosperity. You know where I'm going with this. If you know the text well, I didn't read it yet, but I will now. In chapter 12 and verse 1, it says this. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. The other Gospels tell us that it was Simon the leper who was healed, hosted this dinner in honor of Jesus Christ. Martha served, as she typically did. Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. That would be interesting. Let me just stop there. Think think about that. I mean, you're at this dinner... And Lazarus is sitting there reclining with Jesus and they're talking, they're talking about things of the day, whatever they're talking about. And you walk into that room and you're like, you, you were dead. I mean, what, did that, what was that like? I mean, what, I mean, how many questions would you have for Lazarus in this moment? Like, okay, so, you know, when you heard the voice come out, but yet you were bound and you're hopping out of the grave, okay? And, and, what was going through your mind here? Did you ask? Did you pray for this? No, you were dead, so you didn't pray for this. So this was something that this God did for you. Tell me about this. Man, think of all the questions that go through your mind at this, how impactful this would have been. But anyway, so here he was reclining with Jesus at the table. Verse 3, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in. What an indictment. Here we have John, or the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writing these words for us that we have these couple thousand years later for our benefit and for our advocation. We see here that Judas was very pious in his statement. He was very, sounded very spiritual, rebuking Mary and Mary's given the most expensive thing that she has, most likely, to anoint Jesus' feet. She got it. 
Jesus is going to respond later on to Judas that this was preparation for his burial. She got it. She understood it. But Judas, his perspective of Jesus was simply a means to prosperity. He says, man, why are we wasting this? We could have sold the money. We can put it. But he knew what he would do with it. He knew that he would just personally benefit from the money that was put in the bag. It wasn't because he had a love for Jesus. We see this later on. This is why he then betrays Jesus and sells him out for 30 pieces of silver. Because Jesus was simply a means of prosperity. Now, we can look at Judas and we can shake our heads and we can say, how could you do this? How could you see Jesus as only a means of prosperity? But I wonder if at times we slip into the same thing. I wonder if at times we treat Jesus as more of like the parachute that we, we offer the prayers up, like in the moment, like, hey, I need help now. And yeah, we should pray in those moments. Absolutely we should. I'm not saying we shouldn't. But that shouldn't be our only time of prayer. You know, one of the things that's popular in today's culture is what's known as the prosperity gospel. It's, it's, it's terrible, and it's the idea of that God intends for every person to be wealthy, and so if you are not wealthy, it is because you are in sin against God, and you do not have enough faith, and so you typically, you, you have to have more faith, and the people who preach this gospel typically say that means by giving money to me, okay? And then if you give money to me, then God, you sow the seed, then God will bless it, and God will increase it, and you will be wealthy too. The problem that I, I just don't know why, they, I see these churches that are full of thousands and thousands of people that are preaching this gospel. I just don't know why they don't get it that the only one rich in the room is the guy on the stage. And he's just using Jesus as a means of prosperity. Now, I, you know, I, I think that, I think we have to be careful because it's easy for us to cast stones at people like that because it's real obvious. What about how we treat Jesus? I mean, do, is Jesus simply a means of an escape from the flames of hell? Or is he our life? I mean, do we say, okay, I believe in Jesus so that, man, I, I, I'm going to pray, I'm going to ask God to save me so that I don't have to spend eternity in hell. That's a great thing. But, but that's not it. I mean, that's not following Jesus. That's actually treating Jesus as a means of prosperity. If the only thing Jesus is to us is a means of escaping punishment, then, then we're not seeing the full, we don't have the great perspective of who Jesus is. And so we see Judas here, it was very obvious, it was, very, uh, it was terrible of how he was stealing money and he was just using the name of Jesus to benefit, to personally benefit from it. But um, I think we can, we can look at our own hearts for that. How about, how about it, when bad things do happen to us, you know, how do we respond to those? I mean, is it, Jesus, come on, what are you doing here? You... Why, why do I have to go through this? We've got to be careful with that because it's almost saying, Jesus, you owe me here. You, you owe me. Remember I shared, I think it was last week, I shared Peter when he was like, hey, you know, we've left everything and gone after you. Uh, you know, what are you going to do about that? And Jesus is like, yeah, don't worry about this. You know, will, you will be restored hundredfold in eternity. Do not worry about it. It doesn't matter what you have to go through in this life. You, I'm a debtor to no one is basically what Jesus says. But yet, if we treat Jesus as a means of prosperity, we're just saying, God, what, Jesus, what can you do for me today? 
Can, can you give me that job promotion? You know, I, you, we need to pray about jobs. We need to pray about health. We need to pray about all those things. But if that's the sum total of our prayer life and not admiration and, and thankfulness and gratefulness and worship and following Jesus Christ, we want to check our perspective in this moment because it could be that we're slipping into just seeing Jesus as a means of prosperity. Now, Jesus wants what's best for us, but that doesn't always mean that we'll like it. And he will prosper us, absolutely he will, but not necessarily in the way that we hope he will or we think he should. So as we're looking at all these different perspectives, you know, think about is there a time where you're slipping into seeing Jesus as only a means to get you to the next stage in life or to get you what you need? If that's true, then we're really no better than Judas. Now, the good thing is we can always repent. We can always ask God to forgive us, and we can always ask God to give us a fresh perspective of who Jesus is, and he will, he's gracious, he's forgiving, he's long-suffering, he's patient, and he will carry you through that. But I'm just pointing out different perspectives that I see in the text and asking you to consider how do you see Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? So we've talked about three, there's two more. Number four, the fourth perspective is this, that Jesus, he was not, he was someone who was not worth the risk. Now, I see this. I didn't read this part either, but this is at the, uh, uh, towards the end of John chapter 12. Um, uh, I'm going to start um, about halfway through verse 36, John chapter 12. When Jesus said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. I'm not going to go through those prophecies. But look at this in verse 42. It says, Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. You know what I wrote in my Bible? And I, I don't know if you're in the habit of writing in your Bibles. Um, there's different schools of thought on it. I am. I write. I underline. I circle. I draw little arrows. Because um, it helps me to, as I study the Bible. What I wrote here in this margin after verse 43, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. May that not be me. Because I know how temp tempting that is to desire the glory of man more than the glory of God. But these people, these authorities, it seems like that they were intellectually persuaded of who Jesus was, yet they did not publicly confess it because they were afraid and he wasn't worth the risk of losing their position. Man, there's a lot of applications here. Um, I think sometimes we, we think, we see the, the godlessness of our culture, and particularly in our schools, in our workplaces. I mean, it's, it's very clear no one wants you to talk about God. Um, that's, very, that's abundantly clear. And I think that there is, there is wisdom that needs to be exercised, of course. But I, I think we, 
we fall too much into the uh, forced silence about God. You know, in schools, you, you can talk about God. For those of you who are students here, if you ask your teachers any questions, they can answer, they can talk about any subject. So ask those questions. We have a student that's doing that, and a Bible study has started because and asking the teacher questions. And there are Christians in our public school system. <laughs> there are teachers who are doing the best that they can in dealing with the handcuffs. And we need to pray for our teachers like JP, who is, who is dealing with this on a day-by-day basis of how can he represent Christ, and he wants to. We've had this conversation, but, but he feels the handcuffs. On, but some of you students could just liberate him. But the point is, is that I think sometimes even in our workplace or with our friends or acquaintances or our jobs or schools or whatever the case might be, Jesus becomes someone not worth the risk. I told you a story about a guy named PK um, in India. I met him. And he's, he's started a few churches. We still keep in touch. He sat in on like the last uh, one of my lectures because he was in other classes, other schooling for his job that he couldn't come to the, the lectures I was giving. But the last day he was able to come and, and you know, um, just talking with him and, and asking him questions about what his ministry was like and and he was in very difficult cities because you got to understand, you know, there's, there's holy Hindu cities in India and then the, the opposition of the gospel is so much stronger in those particular cities. And that was one city where he was ministering. And, and I asked him, I said, you know, how do people respond to your presentation of the gospel? And I said, well, what do you do? He said, I just go around and, man, I just knock on doors. I, I just, you know, talk to people in the marketplace. You know, anywhere I can find someone, I just ask them, do you know who Jesus is? And we just start talking. I said, well, how do people respond to that? And, and I told you this before, just very nonchalantly, just, you know, very, as a matter of fact, he was like, well, you know, they don't really like it. And I said, well, what, do, what does that mean? What do they do to you? He said, well, they beat me, you know. I was like, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 wait a minute here. You, they, they beat you? Oh, yeah, 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 they beat me. And, you know, and same as his wife. And I mean, and I mean, you got to understand, in that moment, my head is just like Spinning. And I think I also told you about another man and his wife who were starting a church in a, in a Hindu holy city where, where, you know, Henry told me, he says, man, that is so dangerous what they're doing. I mean, he looked at me and, and very calmly with no theatrics, no melodramatic, no melodrama or anything like that, but just very matter of factly, he says, there's a really good chance that they will die for Jesus Christ. So we're, we're on this bus trip, this guy's sitting next to me, and he's looking at pictures of, you know, of my kids, and I'm looking at pictures of his kids, and we're just kind of talking the best we can, because his English wasn't great, and, you know, my Hindi was terrible, so um, we, we, we're just not communicating much. I just couldn't shake the feeling that, you know, my shoulders touching this guy, because we're riding this bus, I was like, there's a real chance that when I see him in heaven, he's going to have a martyr's crown. I mean, there's a real chance here that this guy's going to give everything for Jesus. And of course, what am I thinking? What would I do? I mean, 
I got two small kids I got to take care of. I got a wife, okay? And, you know, we, we, we got this responsibility here. And I, is Jesus worth the risk? I got to confess to you that there are too many times where I've made the decision that he is not worth the risk. I confess that to you. And I've asked God to forgive me for those moments. And I've asked God to give me opportunities where I take them again. I risk. And what do I risk here? People's approval, likability, maybe a friendship here or there. That's really about it. Maybe a job promotion. When I worked in a different environment other than the church, I, I had those decisions to make as well. And again, you have to use wisdom in how you talk about God in your workplace and all that. I get that. But don't let that culture completely silence you. Because if your perspective of Jesus is higher than this, he will be worth the risk. And you might lose out on a job promotion. It's a very real possibility that you may lose a job even at some point because if you have a supervisor that takes exception to the fact that you're having conversations on your own time, on lunch or whatever it is, with your coworkers about Jesus, and he may make your life miserable because of it. It's a real possibility. I'm not going to lie to you. But is Jesus worth it? That's the question you got to ask yourself. Is he worth it? See, for these people here in John chapter 12, he wasn't. He just wasn't worth it. I told you there's five perspectives, so let me close with the fifth one. Here's the last one. Jesus was worthy of worship. Jesus was someone worthy of worship. Thankfully, these all have been kind of negative here, but we have plenty of examples here about how Jesus was worthy of worship. Now, I want to point out that I think this idea of believing in Jesus was the point of the miracle of Lazarus being raised from the dead. In chapter 11, in verse 15, look at this. It says, um, then Jesus told him plainly, Lazarus has died, and for, I, and for your sake I'm glad I was not there. Why? So that you may believe. He says, I delayed in going, and I'm glad that he's dead, because for your sake that you're going to believe now. And then in verse 25 of the same chapter, he says, uh, when Jesus is talking to Martha, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So, point is belief. Verse 40 of the same chapter, talking again to Martha, Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Two verses later, and Jesus continues, I knew that you always hear me, but he's talking to, to God and praying. He says, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Verse 45, many of the Jews therefore who had come with Mary and seen what he did believed in him. Chapter 12 and verse 11, we see this. So the chief priests of verse 10 made plans to put Lazarus to death as well because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And so the point of the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead was so that people would believe and that he would be worthy of worship and praise. And that is exactly what happens in the heart of Mary and the heart of Martha in the disciples' hearts. And I believe in some of these other people as well. 
So their perspective of Jesus in this moment here is that he is worthy of belief. But I also think that not only the point of the miracle, but it's the point of the triumphal entry. This is Palm Sunday after all, right? So I got to talk about that at least some point in the sermon here. And so here it is, is that this is the point of it, is that so that people would believe. It shows that he would accept worship. He, it fulfilled messianic prophecies, and it removed all doubts of who Jesus claimed to be. In verse 30 of chapter 12, we see, first of all, in verse 28, he says, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice comes from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there heard it and said that it thundered. Others said an angel spoken to him. Jesus answered, the voice came for your sake, not mine. He says, um, it's for your sake that this voice came from heaven so that you would believe. In verse 44 of chapter 12, when Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And so the whole point of this uh, miracle, the whole point of this triumphal entry was so that people would believe in Jesus Christ and wholly follow him and say that he is worthy of worship and praise. This is the reason why we'll find out in different gospels where the people, when the people were praising Jesus on this triumphal entry, the, the Pharisees began to rebuke Jesus and says, hey, shut them up. Tell them to stop doing it. They're saying messianic things about that you. They're saying things about this. And he says, look, if I told them to stop, these stones that are around you right now, they would cry out. What is he saying? Because I am worthy of worship. I am worthy of praise. I am worthy of belief. And that's what's happening all in this scene here. And so as you're looking at your perspective of God today, your perspective of Jesus, here's what I want to ask you, and you knew this is where I was building to, but is he someone who is worthy of worship for you? Now, if the answer is yes, which I think for many of us in the room, that's the instinctive answer that's coming into our hearts right now. But I want you to stop. And as you're answering that question, yes, I want you to think about what does that mean then? I mean, how does that affect your life? If he's worthy of worship and praise, first of all, you got to be grateful. you got to give him praise, and you got to say thank you for all the things that he's done for you. Absolutely, that's, that's the first thing. But also think about how it will change how you structure your life. Your time, your energy, your energy, your emotions, your your uh, uh, possessions, your relationships—all these things—do they fall under the category? This is worthy of Jesus worship. You see, Mary gave up everything she had in this moment. Martha did what she did. She gave her gift of service during this time. Mary gave the gift of of. Um, you know, the, uh, the ointment there and the, uh, the really risking her reputation even by lighting her hair down and wiping Jesus' feet there. There was a lot of raised eyebrows in that room, let me tell you. But she risked it all because he was worthy of worship and Jesus commends her for it. Lazarus, he is a perfect picture of grace that God just blessed him with and gave him life that he didn't ask for. There's, very, there's a lot of parallels there. That he gives you life by forgiving those sins. And it was risky. People wanted to kill Lazarus because of it. And what, you got to think, what does Lazarus think? What did I do? I didn't even ask to be resurrected. But here I am. Why do you want to kill me? Well, it was because he was living proof of who Jesus was, that he was worthy of worship and praise. 
So ask yourself, what perspective do you have of Jesus today? And again, I think we have temptations to kind of go in and out of some of these things. But right now, in your heart before the Lord, think about, okay, is Jesus worthy of worship? And am I giving him all worship? Is he worth the risk for me? So the question I want to leave you with, again, is what we started out with, is who is Jesus to you? Is he merely an escape from hell? Is he too risky for you? Is he a family tradition? Or is he worthy of your devotion and worship? So on this Palm Sunday, as we look at the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ, let's go back to this idea that Jesus Christ is worthy of all of our devotion and all of our worship and all of our praise. And let's ask God to change our hearts and, 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 and be bold in our the conversations about Jesus with other people because he is truly worth it. Let's pray. Father, I want to say thank you that we could take this time without fear of interruption um, and look at this question of who is Jesus. I think on an academic or intellectual level, every one of us here could have answered that question. But what we're getting at this morning is more of a personal question of how am I viewing and treating the person of Jesus Christ today? Am Jesus, I want you to be Lord and sovereign over every area of my life. And you know the wrestling match that you and I get into and how I try to take things back. I got to give them up. You know how I wrestle with the risk and wrestle with the glory and wrestle, wrestle with all these other things and wrestle with just simply being an admirer of you. Yeah, much admiration, but yet... I pray that from this day forward, you would always be my God, my loving Savior, who is worthy of my devotion and worship and praise. And I pray the same for all my friends here in this room. I pray that you would do a work in our heart today that we would wrestle with this question of, okay, who really is Jesus to us? Not intellectually, not academically, but who is Jesus to us? In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.